Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. This was never a whodunit. This was a what happened. 19-year-old Robert Chambers, described as a handsome preppy from an upper-class neighborhood, now faces a murder rap. We talked to everyone who would talk to us, trying to put together the story of the events of the night. Lurid press accounts have suggested Chambers was the victim, forced into sex. He had this entire story down pat in his head. This was rough sex, this poor boy. I thought his story was nonsense from the beginning. When push came to shove, their characters were more on trial than the evidence. One would say one thing, the other one would say another thing. So you're back in the middle, like, who do you believe? Take a look at this. Just take a look at her neck. Do you see how, how discolored and even bleeding her neck is? Yes, I can see that. If I was sitting here telling you this story, yeah. you'd be laughing. No, I doubt I would be laughing. Welcome to season five of The Truth About True Crime. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. This season, I'm taking you back to the 1980s as we look into a case that shocked New York City and which is featured in the Sundance TV docuseries, The Preppy Murder, Death in Central Park. Jennifer Levin and Robert Chambers may not be household names anymore, but everything about her tragic death and the sensational trial of her killer is a household issue in 2019. White male privilege, slut-shaming and victim-blaming, cancel culture, and the perversion of justice. Tragedies, from my experience, don't feel chronological, but fractured and overlapping. So rather than try to tell this story beginning to end, I'm going to try something different. In just three dense episodes, I'm going to shift between narrative levels, unpacking the stories that were being told then, the ones we are telling ourselves now, and the stories that have never been told. We begin in the early morning of August 26, 1986. A young woman's body was found in Central Park. Her clothing was disheveled, her body bruised, and her neck showed signs of strangulation. Detectives quickly determined that the body belonged to 18-year-old Jennifer Levin. Attractive, popular, a week away from starting college, Jennifer Levin had so much going for her. Within hours, the police located the last person seen with Levin the night before. A suspect is under arrest and police say he was not a stranger. 19-year-old Robert Chambers was questioned and gave a videotaped statement describing a scene of rough sex where Jennifer was the aggressor, and how, when he struck her and pulled her off of him, he accidentally killed her in the process. I thought she was kidding around, so I shook her and there was nothing. She didn't move a muscle, not a finger, anything. From day one, the case split New York City in two, between those who couldn't believe a young man would commit murder in cold blood for no apparent reason, and those who felt that Chambers' story was not only contradicted by the evidence, but that he blamed Levin for her own death. 
It was the top of the newscast every single night. It was the front page of every newspaper in town. Before O.J. Simpson, the preppy killer was the trial of the century. And for the last 30 years, this case hasn't stopped resonating. All the players in the story, the victim, Jennifer Levin, the defendant, Robert Chambers, have become magnified into symbols for some of our most contentious contemporary debates. But before these people became symbols in the stories we tell ourselves to make sense of society, they were telling their own stories each crafting an alternative narrative to explain the evidence. And as those stories clashed with each other in the courtroom, they were amplified and distorted by the media, forcing jurors to choose between two very different narratives about who Robert Chambers was. He's a very good-natured young man, well-liked, non-aggressive, non-violent. He wasn't a preppy. He was just a burglar with an Izod shirt. About who Jennifer Levin was. Jennifer Levin was fast and loose. She was a vibrant 18-year-old girl who wanted nothing more than to live and be happy. And about what really happened that night. He murdered her. He killed her in cold blood. He took the life out of her with his bare hands. He did admit to killing Jennifer Levin, but he admitted that he killed her during this sex that they were having, and that was our defense. That defense put Jennifer Levin on trial just as much as Robert Chambers. But before we dig into that, we need to take a moment to set the stage and look at the background stories that New Yorkers were telling themselves in the 1980s. So to begin with, just to kind of roll it back to the sort of before 1986, the city had been in a very serious financial crisis, as was a lot of the United States. So everybody thought that New York City was going to collapse. That's Jessica Doyle, one of Jennifer Levin's closest friends. And then Ronald Reagan came into office, and it was kind of like capitalism gone crazy. Like, woohoo, you know, um, we've just come out of the gas crisis and, and the Iran hostages and you know, the kind of like the 20%, you know, uh, interest rates of the 70s. Like, we're going we're gonna to make it big now. We can spend freely, you know. And you see, like, the men with the super tans and the gold chains and the open shirts, right? And the same for the women, you know, big hair and big parties and big shoulders and, you know, big suits. The 80s was hardcore. It was full on. There was a lot <laughs> going on. <laughs> the New York Jessica Doyle is talking about was the world of privilege, where she, Jennifer Levin, and Robert Chambers lived and partied. Alex Cap, who was dating Robert Chambers, lived there too. The Upper East Side, it was a little pocket of very wealthy white people in finance who had summer homes and country homes and lots and lots of money. But that New York wasn't everyone's New York. Then there was the suffering, underprivileged New York where people were being killed and there was drug wars and there was absolutely no money for state kind of subsidies or intervention or helping people. I mean, imagine living in a society where half the population, you know, has rotting teeth and can't feed their children. The 80s was a time of extremes. New York was fabulous in many ways, but it was also very broken and fractured. These contradictory stories about prosperity and poverty informed another story New Yorkers were telling themselves, a story about crime. New York City used to be, you know, the apple. Then it was called the rotten apple because everything was really going bad. That's Detective Wally Zines. We didn't have enough cops to patrol the streets to do the investigations, and the criminal justice system was uh, really in trouble. By 1990, we had over 2,200 homicides, which is a record. We also set the records for murder, rapes, and burglary. Roger Stavis, who was defending Robert Chambers, was very aware of how this reality and perception of crime was informing the jurors' perspectives. Crime was very, very overwhelming, and it had New Yorkers in fear. You wouldn't want to be on a street if there weren't other people on it. When the populace is in fear, 
as was the case in the 1980s. You have much less of an interest in fairness, a miscarriage of justice, things like that. Meaning, New Yorkers were primed to come down hard on accused killers, be less forgiving, and less worried about convicting the wrong person, provided the accused fit the stereotype of a criminal. There were also stereotypes about victims that derived from contemporary attitudes about sexuality, particularly the sexuality of young women. Just two years earlier, in 1984, Madonna's Like a Virgin had shocked America, becoming an anthem for sexually liberated young women like Jennifer Levin, an anathema for conservatives who saw the song as promoting premarital sex and destroying family values. As reporter Rosanna Scotto says, She went willingly with this young man that night. But back then, if a woman went with another man to have sex in the park, it was considered pretty promiscuous. The jurors were walking into the courtroom with all these background stories circulating in their heads. Stories about privilege and crime and sex. And it was against that background that defense attorney Jack Littman and prosecutor Linda Fairstein had to face off, each developing stories they hoped this New York jury would find more compelling. Timing matters when it comes to the battleground of stories. There is a first-mover advantage, so to speak. And Robert Chambers himself crafted and delivered the first notable story in the saga when he sat down in an interrogation room the morning after he killed Jennifer Levin. My name is Stephen Serrano, I'm assistant district attorney in New York County. I'm willing to answer my questions and tell me the truth about what happened that night. Yes. Okay, just tell me in your own words the best I can. How she came to be dead. The story Robert Chambers gave in his confession was a narrative bomb that reshaped the storytelling landscape. It prescripted the plot of his defense strategy, and it determined what the prosecution had to disprove, what story they had to tell in response. It began at a pub called Dorian's Red Hand, where Jennifer Levin approached Chambers at the bar. Sort of talking about herself and her trip to California and her tan. And uh, I really wasn't all that interested. And uh, she said she wanted to go outside and talk to me about something important. So I went outside. We walked up towards Central Park. And she said, let's go in the park. And I was saying, no, no, you know, I want to go home. Have you made any moves towards her? her No, I wasn't interested at all. I didn't even want to be with her. Chambers claimed that the more he rebuked Levin's interest, the more aggressive she became. She like got up and knelt in front of me and she just scratched my face. And I had these marks here. I didn't even notice until this morning that she was, I don't know, she was insane. I don't know what was wrong with her. According to Chambers, Levin went to pee in the bushes, then came up behind him. And she started to give me a massage and say how cute I looked and that I would look cuter if I were tied up. And she wrapped her underwear around my wrist so they were locked and they were behind my back. She then pushed him on his back, Chambers said, trapping his arms, climbed atop him, removed his pants, and began masturbating him. She was doing it really hard, and it really hurt me. And I, you know, I started to say, stop it, stop it, it hurts. She was just having her way. And then she dug her nails into my chest, and I have scratches right here. Of where she scratched, she oh, I'm here. This is where Robert Chambers, who had been passive up to this point, claimed he took the abrupt action that ended Jennifer Levin's life. I was screaming in pain. I couldn't take it anymore. And I managed to get my left hand free. So I just grabbed her neck as hard as I could and she just flipped over me and landed right next to the tree. Chambers even demonstrated this maneuver on tape to Assistant District Attorney Steve Sirocco. So I stood up and uh, I said, Jennifer, let's go, let's get out of here now. And she didn't move. So I went over and I shook the body, and there was nothing happened, no response. Did you know it was a body at that point? At that point, no, I had no idea. I thought she was kidding around. I didn't mean to hurt her. I liked her. You didn't wind up raped, and she wound up dead. That's all I know. 
Indeed, that's all anyone knew. There was never any doubt that Robert Chambers killed Jennifer Levin during a sexual encounter inside Central Park. Had Chambers denied killing Levin, it probably would have gone poorly for him. But instead, his story cleverly exploited the one gap in knowledge no one could verify but himself. The question was whether the killing was deliberate or an accident. I wouldn't say he was arrogant, but he certainly gave the impression that there's no reason why we should not believe his story and that he should just be let go. He was not let go. He was arrested, charged with murder, and booked. His mother immediately retained star defense attorney Jack Littman. And in the next few days, Chambers' story got distilled by his lawyers and by the media into a two-word defense. I'll never forget it. Soraco said to me, did you see the paper? I said, no. He said, well, do yourself a favor. Go buy the Daily News or the Post. The headlines are rough sex. Could this have happened during rough sex? Rough sex? I never heard of it, but tell me more. Jack Littman refined Chambers' story, tweaking it like a careful editor. One thing is clear, he did not go to that park with any murderous intent. I mean, he had no desire to hurt her. There was no pre-planned activity of creating it. There was something that developed during the course of that evening, which led to this tragedy. But from the beginning, the story of the rough sex defense was more shocking than plausible. It seemed like a very bold strategy. Justin Brooks of the California Innocence Project. As I recall, he was like twice her size, and the idea that he was sexually assaulted by her and he was fighting it off seems like a really hard thing to sell to a jury. But as with my case, the very implausibility of the scenario captured people's imaginations. Jack Whitman, you know, re- released all this to the media and they ate it up. That's Jennifer Levin's friend, Peter Davis. I mean, I would see, you know, walking around New York in my neighborhood, newspapers like Rough Sex, Jennifer's Kinky Diary, you know, self-defense. It was hard to miss any of that, even Mm -hmm. if I did, you know, the headlines were blaring. However implausible Chambers' story was, it found a rapt audience. Because the only thing more outrageous than the story of a privileged white girl found dead in Central Park was the insane plot twist that she was not, in fact, the victim of a sexual predator, but was the sexual predator herself. It was unbelievable, wasn't it? Did you believe him? Yes. That's Roger Stavis, who worked alongside Jack Littman on Chambers' defense team. It was our job to corroborate his account of what had occurred. If that reflected poorly on the victim, I'm not going to not do it because I'm charged with an important responsibility under our Constitution in defending my client. So it's not that let's see how we can blame the victim. It's let's see how we can corroborate the facts communicated by Robert Chambers without an attorney to the police when he was arrested. But I can't pull punches. I mean, I have a job to do. Sure. I had a job to do. He's not wrong about his responsibility as a defense attorney. As Justin Brooks phrased it. You know, as long as you're being ethical and and operating within the system, it's what you're mandated to do. It's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be the one person in the room not judging them whether you believe them to be innocent or guilty. And and that's hard for people to understand. That's why a lot of people don't like defense attorneys. But was Littman corroborating the facts or obscuring them behind a smear campaign against Jennifer Levin, who wasn't even alive to defend herself? The way prosecutor Linda Fairstein saw it, Littman's story about Levin, the aggressor, directed everyone's attention away from the actual evidence and onto her sex life. I screamed uh, like that at, at a much higher pitch, tearing my <laughs> hair out with my colleagues, prosecutors and police over and over and over again. It was um, so much of the attention was completely misdirected. In the 80s, people were still critical enough 
that the first question I'd get if I was having dinner with friends was, well, what was she doing going into the park with him in the middle of the night? What did she think would happen? Were people expecting Jennifer Levin to be a more perfect victim? Such a good question. Just about every victim I've ever encountered has done something that someone has found a way to raise an eyebrow about, if not be critical of. And so for Jennifer, the reason she went into the park was, yeah, to have a sexual encounter with Robert Chambers. So there's no question she was crazy about Robert Chambers. She wanted to have a sexual encounter with him. She'd had him before. That made her distasteful to some people. Being a liberated young woman desirous of sex and being a sexual predator, someone who would tie a man up against his will and subject him to unwanted rough sex, are two very different things. But Littman only had evidence of the former, so the story he told had to rely on a great deal of speculation and innuendo. And young women reacted strongly to that, even those you wouldn't expect to be on Team Levin. Young women like Alex Cap. They spun it so that she was the slut who asked for it. And listen, I can't speak to her character. I, I you know, she's sleeping with the guy that I was dating. I don't know. Obviously, I had my opinions about it, but I don't, doesn't she dead? <laughs> she dead. That's it. Her parents are devastated. She, her friends are devastated. She was 18 years old. Nobody deserves that. It was a horrible way to die. I don't care if she was a, a, a lady of the evening. She didn't deserve to die like that. Mm-hmm. Nobody deserves to die like that. What did you think of the defense's strategy of talking about... It was, dis- it was disgusting. It was disgusting. I knew even then it was disgusting. This was perhaps nowhere more offensive than with the so-called sex diary. Suddenly, Jack Lippman declares that he wants to look at the sex diary that Jennifer kept. And we're like, what? Jennifer keeps a sex diary. There was this whole thing about the sex diary. It's like, wow, you know, forget about the jury. This guy's going to poison all of New York against us. Like with my own diary that I kept in prison, it wasn't the diary itself, which was real, but the story around it that mattered. Here's Chambers' defense attorney, Roger Stavis. We found out that she wrote about Robert Chambers in her diary, and we wanted to see what she had said, so Mm -hmm. we subpoenaed her diary. Which seems like a reasonable request for someone defending their client. We sought to enforce our subpoena. The estate of Jennifer Levin sought to quash that subpoena, and we had litigation. But here's the thing. It was not a sex diary. She kept it in her family's kitchen, as her friend Jessica Doyle can attest. Her so-called lurid diary was a date book that we all had. I had the same thing. And we wrote notes in it and drew pictures and had stickers and photographs and whatever. But as the battle over the diary unfolded, the characterization of it, its role in Littman's story, stuck. The word sex diary became as well known to the public, to the potential jurors, as rough sex. Eventually, Fairstein asked the judge to review the diary privately, and if he found it to be benign, to quash the subpoena, which he did. And we never saw the diary. But New Yorkers never forgot. Meanwhile, Littman had quite a different story to tell about Robert Chambers. Some cases there is an evident and sometimes overwhelming public hostility toward the individual accused. The defense attorney must stand between that public hostility and the accused. This is not a beast I'm representing. He can, given the circumstances, be someone that all of us know. Jack Littman has a point here. When a person is accused, I can tell you from experience, They become fair game for vilification and dehumanization, whether they are guilty or not. It was Jack Littman's job to protect his client from that. But Littman wasn't just playing defense. He was playing offense. Littman held a press conference. He addressed Robert Chambers up. 
and prepared a statement for Robert. I regret that nothing I can say or do can undo the terrible tragedy that has occurred. I am happy to be out of jail and very grateful for the support of my family, relatives, and friends. I was furious. It was the beginning of what the PR campaign was now going to be with Robert Chambers no longer in an orange jumpsuit, but out on TV. He's handsome, he's charming, he's the good boy. And that story took hold in the public. I just can't see him doing anything like that. And the guy is a white, wealthy boy, and they're using him as a scapegoat. They're making an example of him. It's a frenzy. It's a feeding frenzy. You know, and the press just keeps throwing that log on the fire, and people keep buying it. With the press all over this case, Jack Lippman knew it was paramount to shape the public narrative around Robert Chambers. There's endless photos of Robert coming in and out of trial and at trial. So really became he became like, I hate to use the word, but the star of the case. And she was like barely a supporting character. The way Roger Stavis presents it, the press was an independent entity that he and Jack Littman had no control over. The media did what it thought it needed to do according to journalistic standards and to sell newspapers and magazines. We're lawyers, so we, we, we make legal arguments. And how those legal arguments are characterized are, are beyond our control. Beyond control, maybe, but not beyond influence. He was very much alive and a presence when there was no way to do that in the media for Jennifer. Linda Fairstein saw Littman's tactics as crossing a line in media manipulation. But when I pointed that out to Roger Stavis, he was quick to rebut. It's very rich to have a prosecutor say that about a defense attorney when it's the prosecutor's offices in the police department that leak like a sieve, and they have the information. I'm trying to find out the information. Mm. I'm really at a disadvantage, so it's kind of ironic to have a prosecutor complaining about defense attorneys manipulating the media. We don't have control of a narrative. We don't have control of the facts. Stavis has a point. The prosecution allied with police and detectives, is the keeper of the evidence, and so is always playing with more cards than the defense. But Littman's story of Jennifer the aggressor, of Robert the altar boy, relied less on evidence than on superficial stereotypes and titillating misogynist speculation. By the time the trial began, Linda Fairstein was facing an entrenched narrative and she would have to use the evidence to not only discredit Chambers, who didn't at all look like the kind of person who would strangle a young woman without remorse, but to restore Jennifer Levin's reputation as well. My first thing to do was get to know Jennifer Levin through Mm -hmm. the good graces of her parents, her sister, and some of her closest friends, so that I could let this jury know her, know uh, the tragedy of the loss of a vibrant 18-year-old girl who wanted nothing more than to live and be happy. She was about to start junior college in September, three weeks actually after the, the killing occurred, and she was excited about it. She had an older sister to whom she was pretty devoted, Lots and lots of good friends. Friends like Jessica Doyle. Jack Lippman turned it into this huge kerfuffle about how she wanted to have rough sex with him and how she had these lurid sex diaries. Well, I knew Jennifer intimately. I'm the person who introduced her to Robert Chambers. So I know for a fact that that's not accurate. She was demonized, Amanda. Unfortunately for Linda Fairstein, Doyle and most of Jennifer Levin's friends were underage and forbidden from testifying by their parents, who didn't want their children involved in a high-profile murder trial. This made it difficult to counter the Jennifer the aggressor story. But fortunately, the story told by the evidence 
seemed quite clear. We received a call about six in the morning. Dispatcher said we have a young female, DOA, in the park. Investigate DOA. That's Detective Wally Zines. I was running what they call night watch. And it was a nice, quiet evening. The weather conditions were good. And the body was uh, Jennifer Levin. We found uh, she had a wallet on her person. Her skirt was hiked up. Her bra and her blouse were also above her breasts. It looked like this was a victim of a violent sexual assault. Detective Mike Sheehan. There were scratches, heavy bruising all over the rest of her body. And on her neck, there were these reddish-brown marks, which really stood out. In the first moments, there's a million things going through your head. You know, was there a, a dispute? Is this a boyfriend-girlfriend? Or is this a stranger? Was this an attempted rape? Did somebody pull her off Fifth Avenue? What happened to this poor kid? Every single case, you have to go back over the last steps of your victim. What brought this beautiful girl to Central Park? Who was she with? Where was she in the hours preceding her death? The detectives interviewed Levin's friends, which led them to the Upper East Side pub, Dorian's Red Hand. By questioning the victim's friends to track her movements Monday night, detectives learned she had been to Dorian's restaurant, a so-called preppy hangout where the fatal sequence began. A name kept coming up. Robert Chambers. Oh, who's Robert Chambers? They thought at first that Chambers would be a useful witness, the last person to see Jennifer Levin alive before some stranger abducted her and dumped her in the park. But then they saw him. He came out of the bedroom and he had deep, fresh scratches on his face. We shook hands and his right hand clearly had been damaged. It was the fifth metacarpal, classic boxer's injury. This was an impact fracture, but you never want to act surprised. I said, tell me about your face. Oh, well, you know, I was throwing my cat up in the air and, you know, came down and scratched me. He goes, you think this is bad? And he lifted up his shirt and there were these scratch marks from his upper left shoulder right down to his stomach. And they were also fresh. After several hours questioning, they arrested him and charged him with second-degree murder. They think the scratches were made by Jennifer Levin as she tried to fight off his attack. Chambers' injuries were implicating, but it was Levin's injuries that told the most powerful story. Detective Mike Sheehan examined Jennifer Levin's body in the morgue. The bruising was all over the face. The marks on the neck were darker and deeper. They screamed at you, like, look at this. It looked like she was strangled. Her teeth were loose. Her left eye was bulging out of the socket. I asked, what do you think caused that damage to the face? The medical examiner said, it looks like a blow from an instrument, or it could be a blow from a fist. I noticed there were like little half moon marks right over here. And what that was determined to be was from her fingernails. Whatever was strangling her, she was trying to pull it down. The story of the physical evidence seemed to write itself. Before the trial started, we had been hearing this rough sex defense. But when we saw the crime pictures, we realized the evidence was a lot stronger than what Robert Chambers admitted to. One of his friends was so defensive of Rob. I took Jennifer's autopsy photograph out of my folder and I put it down in front of him. And I said, does this look like an accident? Every time I hear Robert Chambers describe the actual physical action he took, which resulted in Jennifer Levin's death, I'm baffled. At times he says he struck her. Other times he grabbed her, yanked her. In any case, he insists the action took place within seconds, just enough time to get Jennifer Levin off of him, which just doesn't account for how Levin died. We knew that the death was asphyxial. That was clear. So how that happened was much more open to interpretation. I began to read and study asphyxial deaths. Every doctor agreed if he just wanted to render her unconscious, 
and then he let go, she would recover. She might have been injured, but she would have recovered. He had to keep applying pressure, keep preventing her from breathing after she had become limp, after she had become unconscious. He had to continue to apply force to kill her. That was intentional. Fairstein found a medical examiner who helped her tell her story that showed intent on the part of Robert Chambers. Jack Lippman and Roger Stavis found a second opinion. He grabbed the neck and there were marks on the neck. So a forensic pathologist verified the markings on the neck and the impact on the carotid artery and all these things. Chambers' expert maintained that Levin's strangulation resulted not from Chambers' hands, but from a kind of chokehold Chambers momentarily placed on Levin from behind to pull her off of him. How long did you maintain this hold on her? I don't know. It seemed like an instant. It was, it was only seconds. I mean, I wasn't holding it or anything like that. I needed the jury to understand that this took minutes, that Robert Chambers, in those three to five minutes, formed and executed the intent to kill Jennifer Levin. The marks on the neck were presented by competing experts. One would say one thing, the other one would say another thing. So you're back in the middle, like, who do you believe? As a juror, it's easy to get dazzled with details and baffled with bullshit, losing sight of common sense as you get lost in the weeds of conflicting expert testimony. I saw that firsthand for eight long years in my own trials. Sometimes you have to cut through those weeds with Occam's razor, a la Jessica Doyle. She was five foot seven and weighed 120 pounds. Robert was six, three, or four and weighed almost 200 pounds. So you're going to tell me that she straddled the guy and was like trying to force him to have sexual action with her and she was hurting him? So he flipped her over and whoops, she's dead. Yeah, it's like, no, okay, he strangled her. The physical implausibility of Chambers' account was a key plot point in Fairstein's story. I want to be perfectly frank with you. I really don't believe what you're saying about what happened that night. You, you've seen these photos. I haven't seen the photos, and I'd really rather not see the photos. Yeah. Take a look at this. Just take a look at her neck. Robert, come on. Robert, yeah. Do you see how, how discolored and, and even bleeding her neck is? Yes, I can see that. If I was sitting here telling you this story, yeah. you'd be laughing. No, I doubt I would be laughing. It just doesn't make any sense. Why not? I'm, I'm sure that I've, I've heard about other men being raped, men being held well, up, tied up. You didn't wind up raped, and she wound up dead. That's all I know, all right? Even years later, ADA Steve Sirocco looks back on this interrogation and shakes his head. It was like he was in the principal's office, thought he was going to give uh, somebody this story and just uh, go home. But I had seen the crime scene photographs, and... What's going through my mind is that the story just is, does not comport in any way with the physical evidence. Uh, there are, there's big, he looks like he's been in a fight. She looks like she's been in a fight, and they were in a fight. I had no idea at that time about the 40 bucks that's missing from her purse or the earrings that are missing from her ear. I wish I had known that at that time, but nobody knew that at the time, and we could have pressed him a little bit more. And this brings us to the last crucial chapter in Fairstein's story, the one meant to counter Littman's good boy image. Fairstein was sure there was more to Chambers than met the eye. She went digging. Robert had become addicted to cocaine and other drugs when he was 14, thrown out of school for stealing a teacher's wallet to get the money to, to buy drugs. The wallet was found in his locker. We had all those records and his parents sent him away to a detox center for adolescents in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He came back 
We started over again, but we were able to document between the ages of 15 and 19 more than 20 crimes that he had committed. Most mm. of them theft. Most of them were were committed for the purpose of stealing things to get the money to buy drugs. These new revelations about Chambers' past were huge for the story Fairstein was trying to tell. For the defense... These were huge problems for him, and they became huge problems for us. I wanted to argue that Robert Chambers would have taken the earrings, hoping they were diamonds that he could sell for drugs. Unfortunately for Fairstein, Jack Littman successfully filed a motion to suppress evidence about Chambers' history of theft and drug use, as well as Levin's missing earrings. We had to cover Jennifer's ears with a piece of tape so that the jury could not see the earrings that were not present at the crime scene. Linda Fairstein came away from her investigation into Robert Chambers' past with a clear feeling about him. This was a dissolute, sociopathic drug addict who cared about no one but himself. But so much of the evidence that informed her opinion, she was not allowed to present at trial, hamstringing the story she wanted to tell about Chambers. That said, not all depictions of Chambers in the media were working against Fairstein's story. As early as two days after the murder, there were reports about Chambers' drug use and run-ins with the law. Reporter Rosanna Scotto even ran a story entitled Five Things the Jury Will Not Know About Robert Chambers. Chambers' videotape statement was the last of four different versions he gave police, that Chambers is a suspect in at least a dozen burglaries, that he had a serious drug problem, that Jennifer Levin was missing around $70 in her wallet, and that the rhinestone earrings she was seen wearing that night were also missing. Even so, as with today, the driving force of the media coverage was scandal. Jessica Doyle recalls being ambushed by the New York Post outside the courtroom. They said to me, you're Jennifer Levin's best friends. Do you have any regrets? And I said, what do you mean? Do you have any regrets introducing her to Robert Chambers? And I said, well, no, I mean, and then they cut me off and they said, oh, thank you, no regrets. And they walked away. Well, of course, that's not what I meant to say. Of course, I had a thousand and one regrets. But what I meant to say was, no, I didn't have regrets for introducing her to Robert Chambers because I had known him for six years before I knew her. So then imagine the parents, right? That their child's been slaughtered, murdered in Central Park. And the child's best friend, there's a full headline on the cover of the New York Post the next day. And it says, Jennifer Levin's best friend, no regrets. You know, and it sounds like I'm saying I have no regrets that she's been killed. This story was going to sell papers no matter what. But Linda Fairstein's version of the story was at a disadvantage because Robert Chambers' version was too outrageous and implausible to not turn heads. As someone who has been in the headlines for murderous orgies and sex games gone wrong, I can I understand how rough sex became more important than anything else in this case. It definitely triggers people um, in a very base way. And the tabloids know that, and that's how they make their money. <laughs> yeah, but it's... yes, and you do know it. You know the pain that that uh, comes with it. So yeah. it's uh, we, we were all, I think, fighting harder because Jennifer wasn't there to fight herself and to see her parents, people pawing, reporters pawing at garbage outside their homes as they threw things out, thinking they were going to find papers or diaries or something related to Jennifer. It was just... Uh, ugly on so many levels that that um, there are parts of it that just are like a, a searing stake in, in the chest, you know, in your heart. People digging into Jennifer Levin's trash looking for answers 
reminds me of how people looked into my eyes for answers, as if there wasn't a mountain of evidence right there in front of them indicating someone else's guilt. But that's human nature for you. Our minds and language are built for signaling and storytelling, not for the careful and objective distillation of truth. The same is true of our criminal justice system. The criminal justice system does not provide answers to what happened. And it's not, it's not designed for that. You don't come out of a criminal trial saying, here's exactly what happened. Prosecution can't tell you exactly what happened. So it's an, it's an imperfect vehicle for finding the truth. There's an expression, a trial is a search for the truth. And I thought that whoever said that never tried a case. <laughs> There's so many aspects where you don't want to have the truth. For example, Littman and Stavis moved to exclude evidence of Chambers' prior burglaries. And it's totally reasonable for them to do so, for that information would likely have biased the jury against Chambers for a separate and unrelated charge. But then again, those are part of the truth, aren't they? What Stavis is getting at is that the courtroom is less a truth-finding laboratory than a battleground of storytelling. And the most powerful narrative weapon in that battle is providing an answer to why. The prosecution couldn't prove mm. what happened, and they also couldn't prove a motive. There was mm -hmm. no motive for this. They tried to flail around and throw certain motives up, but they didn't have any evidence of them. Prosecutors do not have to prove a motive when they are trying a murder case. And yet, it's part of human nature. It's the thing everybody wants to know. That lack of motive, that glaring hole in the story Linda Fairstein was able to tell, made it hard for a jury to agree on a verdict for this privileged, handsome white kid. The sticking point was intent. We had to reach a decision, guilty or not guilty, on the first charge, which was murder too. We had to decide whether we, he intentionally killed her or was it an accident. I remember being sequestered. So fine, one overnight is not a big deal. Two overnights we can live with. When it came into seven, eight, nine, you know, everybody wanted out. One juror faked a heart attack. Some of the women were crying. They just couldn't take it anymore. You know, one of the jurors locked himself in a, in a refrigerator because I wanted to kill him. I was very angry at the fact that we couldn't reach a decision. It's a Manhattan jury. It's a marvel <laughs> to, to convince 11 Manhattan residents uh, to be unanimous uh, on anything. You at some point realize, oh my God, this is going to be a hung jury. There's going to be a mistrial. New York City's so-called preppy murder trial came to a dramatic and unexpected end late today. I did it with as heavy a heart as anything I've ever done professionally. They were out nine days, which was, I'm not proud of the record, the longest deliberation for a single defendant up to that point in time in New York State. And at the end of the nine days when they announced they were unable to agree, uh, I went down and the Levin family, they trusted me with the legacy of their child. They trusted everything that I did. And I said to them, I'll, I'll go again. I have no problem retrying this case. But I didn't know if the Levins could withstand going through this again with their daughter being blamed for her own death. Mm -hmm. And so they said, yes, take the plea and let's, let's have it over. It happened at just a few minutes after five this evening. In a packed and hushed courtroom, Robert Chambers pleaded guilty to the charge of first-degree manslaughter. And Robert Chambers, in a way, got to have the final word. Today we came to, to see the end of a trial, a trial with no answers, a trial with no winners. Eleven family have gone through hell because of my actions, and I am sorry. And the conviction by plea resulted in his spending 15 years in state prison, which I don't think 
even a murder conviction resulted in more time. It was 19 without prior conviction. So, mm-hmm. uh, ironically, it was not the result I sought, but uh, it might ha- not have been different than a trial result on a retrial. Mm-hmm. If we were lucky. This result hammers home how the criminal justice system doesn't promise truth-seeking so much as the negotiation and compromise between competing stories. Would you say that this case was successfully defended? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's already... Yes, he wasn't convicted of murder. Would you say it was also successfully prosecuted? Well, I mean, where are we going with this? I mean... Oh, no, I'm just asking. No, no, I'm not... Yeah, he went to jail. The result of Linda Fairstein's compromise was a kind of Schrodinger's cat, in which both Chambers' innocence and guilt were affirmed at the same time. But Fairstein only compromised because she was uniquely handicapped in this case, by a lack of close witnesses who would testify at trial. What they knew could have changed not only which story won the day, but which symbols would last 30 years later. I'm sequestered. Uh, I mean, much to my dismay, I wanted so much to be a part of it, but my parents wouldn't let me get near it. They weren't allowed to use my name. They just didn't want me to have anything to do with it. And in retrospect, as a parent now, I know they did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't, I wasn't pounded, which would have been terrible. You know, right. I never, that never happened. I never had the opportunity to speak with Alex Cap. She was really kind of a linchpin in our attempt to prove what happened. I would love to have a conversation with her at any point in time just to uh, learn some things that, that um, have always sort of haunted me about that night and about Robert. Next time on The Truth About True Crime. We're shifting our narrative perspective to the teens at the heart of this story and moving back in time to the night of as we pry open the unanswered questions in search of a missing motive. This podcast is written and produced by me, Amanda Knox, and my partner, Christopher Robinson, and directed, edited, and sound designed by Galen Mullins and Wes Daimling. It is executive produced by Malka Media, Sundance TV, and AMC Digital Studios. To dig deeper, be sure to check out the Sundance TV docuseries, The Preppy Murder, Death in Central Park, on SundanceTV.com and the Sundance TV app. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.